Well, we are finishing up Ephesians chapter 6, verses 17 through 20 this morning, and I'm preaching the second part of uh, the first part of the Armor of God, a little two-part series in the all-in um, all in sermon series we've been going through. I'm going to finish up the all-in series next um, next weekend, and I was thinking about this over the last month or so. Um, when you're talking about being all-in in terms of your commitment with Christ, um, that's what the whole Bible's about, really, right? I mean, that's what Genesis to Revelation is about, is that we are called to be all-in, not sort of hold back on Christ and, you know, give Him just, you know, a little bit of service here and a little bit of love there. He, he's worthy of it all. And so I thought, you know, if I don't get out of this all-in series at some point, I'm going to just stay right in this same series uh, for all of 2017, which I guess that'd be okay if it's the Word of God. Amen? So uh, we're going to finish up the Armor of God Part 2 is the title of my sermon. And uh, last week we looked at the four pieces of spiritual armor at the top of the list. Today we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about the helmet of salvation. We're going to talk about the sword of the Spirit. And I'm going to include prayer in this section, even though it's not a technical piece of armor, because I think it's important. You say, why are you teaching on the armor of God and spiritual warfare as a part of this all-in series? Here's why. Because if we're going to be committed to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we're going to live wholesale, sold out for Him, then we can rest assured, we can take it to the bank. We will face spiritual warfare. I mean, it's going on all around us now, and we may be oblivious to it, but the minute that we say, you know what, I'm tired of holding back. I'm tired of holding out on God. I'm going all in this year. I'm going to live my life for Christ as my Lord and Savior. The minute we do that, we can rest assured we're going to face spiritual opposition. And so we have to know how to put on our battle gear. We have to know how to put it on because it's vital to our Christian walk. So without any further ado, let's step right into verse 17 and I'll read the scripture for us this morning. Ephesians 6 and verse 17 is a continuation of a sentence and it says this, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So in this section, the first thing that Paul tells us to take up is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now, Tekoa showed a picture, if you couldn't see it, of, uh, of a football player. It was the first picture that she showed. And, of course, the football player has to wear what on the field? His helmet. I shared with you a couple weeks ago um, that I, I played football one, one season in middle school. And uh, some of you laugh. I see some snickers. That's okay. I can deal with it. Um, but I actually didn't play one season. I played seven terrifying plays. And I mean terrifying. When they hiked the ball, I was ready for that thing to hit the ground or somebody score. And I didn't care if it was our team or the other team. I wanted to be off that field. Because I knew I did not belong out there. I shared with you the picture of, of myself. I was four foot eight, four foot eight, and 82 pounds. My second grader is almost that big uh, to give you a little bit of comparison. But I learned that you never go out on the field without your helmet. Okay? And in today's game, if you get your helmet knocked off or something, I think you've got to sit out a play or something like that. 
And so you have to have your helmet on the field. The same is true for the Christian. We ought to never step out onto the battlefield, which is basically opening our eyes in the morning. We ought to never step out on the battlefield and leave our helmet of salvation behind. Well, it's just like Tekoa said, we don't wear real helmets. I don't see anyone in here. I'm looking. I don't see any helmets in here this morning. So what exactly does Paul mean? First, we need to remember something so important. I talked about it last week. This is a letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote not to an individual, but to who? A church. This is written to the Ephesian church. So if you're a part of the church, biblically speaking, here's what that means. It doesn't mean you come and sit on a pew on Sunday. That doesn't make you a part of the big C church that Christ died to redeem. What makes you a part of the church is belonging to Jesus Christ through repenting of your sin. If you're going this way, away from God, a repent is repent basically means do a U-turn. You turn around and you come back that way. I explained it to kids like this. The way that I get to Krispy Kreme is I have to go past it. I realize I'm going the wrong way. You know Patton Avenue, right? What do you have to do? A U-turn to get back to the good stuff. That's what repentance means. You want to get back to Christ, you're going the wrong way. You realize it when God brings you to that awareness. You do a U-turn. You go the other way back towards Christ. I can't tell if you love Krispy Kreme donuts right now or you are loving repentance. But that's neither here nor there. We repent of Christ, of our sin, and we place our faith in Christ. So here's what that means. He's talking to a church. These are people who have already repented of their sin, placed their faith in Christ. They are saved people that have been redeemed and regenerate in their souls. And so putting on the helmet of salvation, Paul cannot be telling them, you need to get re-saved. Paul's not saying by putting on the helmet, you need to get saved again. That's not consistent at all with what Scripture teaches. These people have already said yes to Jesus and no to sin, self, and Satan. And so they belong to Christ. So putting on the helmet then must mean something different. Well, what is a helmet for? A helmet protects your foot. No. Protects your hand. No. What does a helmet protect? You're all awake. I love it. The helmet protects our head. And it's the helmet of salvation. So a natural question, and when you study your Bibles at home, ask questions of the text. Pummel the text with questions. Write down your questions and watch God answer those questions as you study the Word. A natural question here is, how does salvation protect my head how does it protect my mind well I think the helmet here is referring to the mind that is controlled by God Philippians 4 8 talks about anything that is and Paul has a lot of adjectives just and honorable praiseworthy true excellent think about these things our minds are so important in everyday life in our Christian walk our minds need to be controlled by God so we have to put on the helmet of salvation When a person is saved from their sin through a relationship with Christ, listen to what the scripture says happens. It says that when you're saved from your sin, you are spiritually raised from the dead. Why do we baptize? By immersion. Because it's a picture of death and resurrection. You're being laid under the water and you're being raised up. And here's what I tell kids all the time. When when I baptize a child, I say, what would happen to you if I held you under? And they look at me like that. I say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But if I held you under for a long enough time, what would happen? I would die. That's right. I said, but what happens if I raise you up? 
then I'll live. I said, that's the picture of baptism. That the old sin and self has been crucified with Christ and it's dead and buried and gone and we're raised to walk in what Romans calls a newness of life. Listen to Colossians 3.1, what Paul says about the mind. If you're saved, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are where? Above. You say, how do I do that? Verse 2, he says, I'm glad you asked. Let me clarify. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphe, changed, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Of your mind, of your mind. So how do you set your mind on God? Paul tells us in Colossians 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, how? Richly, not scarcely, not barely. Not occasionally, not on Sunday, richly, all the time, abundantly, fully. Have it in your heart, have it in your mind, speak it in your conversations. Sing it back to the Lord. You say, I, don't, I can't sing. That's all right, nobody else cares, the Lord loves to hear you sing. Sing it to Him. Let me give you a statement. If I am in Christ, if you are in Christ, then the devil cannot get to your heart. He can't. Ephesians tells us we're sealed We're sealed. The devil's sealed out from getting in. If we're in Christ, the Spirit seals us, seals our hearts. But you know what the devil can do? He can get to your head. He can't get to your heart. But man, can he get to our heads. So the helmet of confident salvation in Jesus keeps the devil from getting to our heads. And you know what I think the devil wants to do as much as anything? I think he wants to influence our minds. I think he wants to get to our heads and affect our thinking with lies or tempting us to despair or be discouraged or to quit praying for that loved one that you want to see in church and you say, well, it hadn't happened and it's been five months or five years or 15 years. You ought to just quit praying. It's never going to happen. The devil wants to influence our minds because you know what happens when our minds are influenced? Our minds lead to these, our hands. And these are feet. And we do things and we go places and we're involved in things that we should not be. Why? Because our minds were influenced by the enemy. And so allowing God to put that helmet of the salvation that he's given you, putting it on your head and controlling your mind, keeps the devil from getting to our heads. When I was a sophomore in, uh, in high school, I apologize for another um, athletic reference here, but I think, I think this one kind of fits. When I was a sophomore in high school, um, I wrestled the 103-pound weight class. So I made it finally from 82 pounds to 103 pounds. I was, I was a whopper. Um, but my sophomore year, a varsity wrestling match, the very first match of the year, we wrestled against Leesville Road in Raleigh and Douglas Bird in Raleigh. It was a little triad. You had to wrestle two matches that, that night. And I can remember looking at the coach's roster because I was always so nervous about who I was going to face. And so I went to look at the roster that the coach had written down. And sometimes he would shuffle us around and you'd have to wrestle up a weight class or something. But on this particular occasion, I was scheduled for the first match at 103 pounds. And across from my name was a name that looked an awful lot like a girl's name. <laughs> Melody. I don't remember what her last name was, but I will never forget her first name. Melody, I had to wrestle a girl. 
That's right. When you're 15 years old, do you know how terrifying that is? That you're in a gym full of people and they're watching you wrestle a girl. That is terrifying. Well, here's where it gets worse. The guys on the team, especially the older guys, they thought this would be really funny if they came to me and they kind of put a little extra pressure on me as if I needed any more. And so the guys on the team tried to get in my head, and, and, and they did. They got in my head big time. And they had me believing if this girl beat me, they were going to kick me off the team. I was terrified, man. I'd already had my letter jacket. How am I going to explain to people that I lost my letter jacket? How did you do that? I, I lost to, to a <clears throat> girl. <clears throat> now, there's been some good girl wrestlers. I know Sarah McMahon come from this county, and she would have she'd she'd taken my letter jacket. Let's just leave it at that, big time. But they tried to get in my head. I, I was so tore up, I couldn't see straight. I was so anxious. I mean, I was just shaking when I went out on the mat. So I get out on the mat. I'm across from this young lady, Melody something another from Douglasburg High School. And if she hears this, uh, I'm going to give her some props here. Ref blew the whistle. I was so nervous, I froze. She shot in, did a takedown move, took me down. I'm laying on my stomach. I look up at my dad. My dad drops his head. And I thought, I'm in for the fight of my life. She is serious about this thing. And so I realized I, I've, I've got to do something here. And so the good news for me, uh, not for you because you don't get to pick on me about this, is I, I reversed her and I, I turned her over and I pinned Melody to win the match. I pinned her to win the match. But here's the thing. All, all the way up until that point that she took me down, you know the worst part about the whole thing was what my teammates tried to do by getting in my head. They had me so messed up by telling me, feeding me this lie that I was going to They can't kick me off a team. The coach is the one that can kick me off the team. And I just wasn't thinking straight. You know why? Because someone got in my head. You know what the devil wants to do? He wants to get us so turned around, so listening to his lies, so buying into his deceptions, that he can get to our head and render us ineffective because we're more concerned about something else rather than keeping the main thing, the main person, the main thing, and the main person. And that's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He wants to have us arguing and fussing and fighting and carrying on. You know what else he loves to do? He loves to remind you when you slip and stumble and fall and blow it, he loves to come in there and say, hey, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were saved. You shouldn't be acting that way. You should be better than that. That's not how a Christian acts. And the devil loves to get in our heads and cause us to think that we can lose our place on the team. But you know the only person who can kick you off the team? is the coach. You know what the coach said? I'm losing nothing that the Father has given to me. No one can pluck them out of my hand. And so you come to that coach, you come to Jesus Christ and say, Can I be on your team? And he says, you repent of your sin and place your faith in me, and you're more than welcome to be on my team, and I'll never kick you off. That's kind of a modern-day paraphrase, but that's what the Father says to us. We belong on his team not because of the good we've done, because there's not a whole lot of good compared to the bad, is there? Right? We belong on that team because of what Jesus does for us in our place. 
He went to that cross. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took our sin. And he defeated the enemy. And we don't, listen to me, please hear this. If you're a believer in Christ today, you don't fight for victory. You fight from victory. You don't fight for it. It's already been given to you. You fight from a place of victory. So if you know the scoreboard says 511,000 to nothing, then you're guaranteed mentally of the victory. You know you're on the winning team. You know you're on the winning side. You know what that cross did for us? It shut Satan out. Jesus pitched a shutout. D.L. Moody said, I believe hundreds of Christian people are being deceived by Satan now on this point of the assurance of their salvation. They don't have an assurance of their salvation, Moody says, because they're not willing to take God at his word. What did Paul say? We're sealed. What did Jesus say? Nobody's plucking them out of my hand. We belong to Christ because of that blood that gives us the victory that we sang about at the beginning of this service. So you know what you need to do? You need to have your mind controlled by God. How do you do that? You go to him and say, Lord, I want you to control my thinking today. I'm going to put that helmet of salvation on because it belongs to me, not because I earned it, because you issued it to me when I enlisted in your army. We need to put on that helmet. Number two, we need to take up the sword of The spirit, Roman soldiers had several types of swords they used. The one Paul's talking about here is about 6 inches to 18 inches long. Very short sword. You say, well, what, what good is a short sword like that going to do? It was used for fighting in close quarters. You know what our spiritual conflict is like? It's not long range laser guided missiles. It's right here. And it's in here. And it's here. The devil comes after He tries to come after your heart, can't get to it. Tries to come after your mind, the helmet of salvation guards it. Tries to come after your hands and your feet, get you to go places and do things that you know don't honor the body and blood of Christ. He wants you to cause you to stumble into sin. You say, what do I do when he comes after me? You take up your sword. What is the sword? Paul says it's the word of God. Now you go read any commentary. I've looked at a bunch of them this week. Any commentary. You know what all of them say about this? That it's the only offensive weapon that we're given on this list. The rest of it is defensive. It's the only offensive weapon in the list. Now that is true. But it is also a defensive weapon. Okay, so any of you who are Star Wars fans, in the, in the Star Wars lightsaber battles, what happens? They pull that lightsaber out and they fend off the enemy coming at them. Some of you are like, I've never even seen Star Wars in my life. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus faced a time of temptation in the wilderness. Satan comes after him. Three times he takes stabs at him with temptations. And what does Jesus do? Does he put on his helmet, put on his breastplate, and just kind of stand there and do this? No. He takes the word of God and he wields the word of God because he knows the word of God, because he is the word of God. And he fends off the attack of the enemy. What does he tell him? He says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that what? Comes from the mouth of God. We live on the very words of God. What would happen if for one week, seven days, you did not spend any time in this book? You know what would happen? You would be spiritually depleted. Just in the same way that if you didn't eat anything from now until next Sunday morning, you would walk in here and your skin and your hair and your eyes and your face, everything would look different about you because you would be depleted. 
We need the Word of God like we need bread to sustain us. We need this Word. You say, well, what is it that makes it powerful? What makes it effective? Paul tells us it's because of the kind of sword it is. One of my boys has a a little Swiss Army pocket knife. It's not a real one. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's a little plastic one. And it does have a cool little spoon and fork that they can dig into their mashed potatoes with. But usually it's so dirty we won't let them do that. This is not a Swiss Army knife. This is not a dull little tiny blade that won't do anything but trim your fingernails. What makes this sword so powerful? What makes it so different from every other book on your shelf? Paul tells us it's because of the kind of sword that it is. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit, and the Spirit makes the Word powerful and effective. Listen to this from John Phillips. He says, The Word cuts through all of Satan's ranks, deceptions, and devices. The devil is no match for the Holy Spirit. God's Word is the very breath of God. It is alive with His authority. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active. Some translations say effective. Same idea. Sharper than any two-edged what? Sword. Have you ever wondered why you can read the same text? I mean, I could preach on the same passage six weeks in a row. And you could come in here on week one, two, three, four, five, and six. And I could, I could say the same thing about it. But each week, God teaches you something different about how to apply it to your life. You say, how in the world does a book that was written 2,000 and 4,000 years ago have such a hold on the things of my life? Because it's living. Because it's active. It's not dead. It's not antiquated. It's not just written by the, the brilliance of men. It's carried along by the word of the Spirit. The Spirit infuses it. The Spirit moves it. Some of you sometimes come up to me and say, man, how did you know? I say, how'd you know what? How'd you know how to say that? And I was going through that. I said, I didn't know what he did. The Word of God delivers it to the places in our lives where we need to hear it. And like I said earlier in my prayer, sometimes we get a little puffed up and the Word kind of knocks us down just a little bit. Sometimes we're down here and we're weak and the Word comes along and strengthens us and encourages us and gives us the strength that we need for the journey. So let me ask you a question. If the Word of God really is all that, then why are there so many dusty swords on our coffee tables today? I mean, we have six or seven of them, I think, on average in American homes. We have Bibles that are as thick as I am tall, and we display them so people come in and see them. We have multiple translations. We have every available opportunity to know this sword and to know how to use it. And so many of our swords stay tucked away down in our sheath. Why is that? Al Muller, the president of Southern Seminary, says this. I love this quote. Listen, here it is on the screen. Listen. We will not believe... More than we know. And we will not live higher than our beliefs. We will not believe more than we know. And we will not live higher than our beliefs. I want you to listen to an excerpt from his blog. He says this. He says, while America's evangelical Christians are rightly concerned about the secular world's rejection of biblical Christianity, we ought to give some attention, some urgent attention to a problem much closer to home. Biblical illiteracy in the church. 
He says, this scandalous problem is our own, and it's up to us to fix it. Researchers George Gallup and Jim Castelli put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they become a nation of biblical illiterates. How bad is it? Researchers tell us it's far worse than we can imagine. Listen to these statistics. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of Jesus' disciples. According to data from the Barner Research Group, 60% of Americans cannot even name five of the ten commandments. They say, no wonder we break the ten commandments all the time. We don't know what they are. We are becoming biblically illiterate as a country, as a nation. 82% of Americans think that this is a Bible verse. God helps those who help themselves. Born-again Christians only did better by 1% on that question. A majority of adults think the Bible teaches the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that 50% thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that they thought the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. We are in big trouble. End quote. How will we fight off the enemy? How will we advance the kingdom? How will we keep our feet in the battle if we don't know how to use the weapon that God has given to us? What are you doing when the enemy comes if you don't know how to use your sword? There was a high school student named Chad whose band performed on a Caribbean cruise. One night his buddies came to him and they tried to entice him on the cruise ship. They said, hey Chad, come on, let's, let's go down to the bar and, and have a drink. Chad's mother was an alcoholic. And Chad memorized verses from Proverbs about alcohol abuse and the dangers of using alcohol. He explained to his friends, addiction runs in my family. And he even quoted scripture to them when they continued to try to entice him. He said, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Proverbs 20 verse 1. They said to him, oh man, come on, come on. Just just one One drink won't hurt. Come on with us. It'll be fine. He said, at last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Proverbs 23, 32. They said, Chad, you're turning your back on us, man. We're friends. I thought we were in this thing together. He said, if sinners entice you, do not consent. One of the boys finally said to the group, they said, leave him alone. They said, he's so full of scripture, we can't do a thing with him. What a testament to the word of God. To keep one young man strong in the fight when the devil came after him and could have blown his witness or fallen headlong into a sin that had destroyed his family. Third, we need to make sure we don't forget our wartime walkie-talkie. Don't forget your wartime walkie-talkie, verses 18 through 20. When I was a little boy, I loved playing with walkie-talkies. Maybe my favorite toy that anybody ever gave me was just a little cheap set of walkie-talkies. When Dad was finished with his ones that he used for hunting, he'd give them to us, and we'd run through the woods. Hey, you know, 
And we had a great time playing with walkie-talkies, pretending to fight imaginary enemies. But you know what? I think a walkie-talkie is a perfect picture for prayer. It's a perfect picture for prayer. You're talking to someone you can't see, and they talk back. How do they talk back? This book right here. That's why I think Paul includes it. It's not a piece of armor technically, but it's vital to our success. John Piper describes prayer this way. He says, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church. As it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. He says, it's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so we can call to headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Four times you see Paul say all. Four times he uses the word all. Pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. What does that mean? Well, there's different ways and things to pray for. With all perseverance for all the saints, emphasizing the unity of believers. And then verse 19 and 20. Paul shares a prayer request with his friends. We do that a lot, don't we? Sit in a circle of people. Does anybody have any prayer requests? And we share whatever's on our heart, whatever we're going through. Do you see here in verse 19 and 20 what Paul's prayer request was? If he was here in church, he'd take that little card and he'd write, Apostle Paul, and he would write down this prayer request we find in verse 19 and 20. He says, please pray for me that I'll have the boldness to open my mouth and speak the gospel to others like I should. Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. He wrote over half of the New Testament. And he planted churches and he's the greatest missionary statesman Christendom has ever known. And he needed us to pray for boldness. Apparently so. That's how my Bible reads. The Christian life is a battlefield. And if you think for a moment that it's just a playground... And you're completely snowed and completely deceived by the enemy. We can't leave our wartime walkie-talkie behind. When I was in the sixth grade, I went to camp with my youth pastor, Shay. uh, My youth pastor down in Durham. I was the only boy of all the middle school girls that went. And I thought, man, this is going to be a great camp. I was super excited. I ended up rooming with Shay. And at first, it's like, man, I don't know if I want to room with my youth pastor. But his wife bakes really good cookies and makes really good sweet tea. And so we had two air mattresses set up with a jug of tea and a thing of cookies between us. And we just grabbed the jug and drank it and set it down. I thought, this is great. This is awesome. But I remember most from that camp. You know what I remember? That's where I learned the armor of God. Duffy Robbins. I don't know if anybody knows that name. Duffy Robbins. He's written books on youth ministry, spoken across the country. He was at the Great Escape Camp in Tennessee in the sixth grade year that I went there. He taught on the armor of God. And he taught us how to remember it, taught us like this. He says, you got the belt, the breastplate, the boot, the bonnet. What's a bonnet? Bonnet, the sword, the shield. And then he finished like this. You've already won it. The belt, breastplate, boot. Bonnet, the sword, the shield, you've already won it. You know what we need to know? We need to know we've already won it. And ever since sixth grade, you know what I walk around saying when I see this passage? 
the belt, the breastplate, the boot, the bottom, the sword, the shield. I've already won it. Stuck in my head. I was 11 years old. 22 years ago, I still remember him teaching on the armor of God and how we need to take it up if we're going to be all in and committed to Christ Jesus. Don't leave anything behind. Don't step out of these doors into the battleground unguarded. Put your helmet on. Take up the sword. Store it in your mind. Store it in your heart. Know how to use it so when the enemy comes against you, you can fight him off. And don't turn the wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Beep. Can I have some more comforts down here in the den? We're in an army. We're advancing against the powers of darkness as we keep our feet in the battle. Paul says four times, stand. Twice he says, put on the armor. How do we stand? By putting on the armor. Let's pray.